Do you or someone you know have a message to share with our local community? Then please visit cjroradio.com and contact us through our website. And now, what you're about to listen to is the first part of a long-form interview with a local who shares their thoughts and feelings about our community and the place they call home. Yeah, so my name is Konstantin Malikos. I'm the NDP candidate in Glengarry Prescott Russell. Um, I'm also a working class guy. I'm a farmer. I have a little hobby farm. Um, and I'm just a, I'm a person who believes that we need more working class representation in Parliament. Okay. So tell me about the, the farm work that you have. Yeah, so we have a little hobby farm. It's uh, we, we raise chickens, ducks. Uh, we have two calves uh, just uh, that we're raising as well. Um, it really is just a, a labor of love, a project of passion, um, you know, with the goal of food self-sustainability, permaculture. I'm very, very interested in regenerative agriculture and uh, climate change solutions being found in agriculture. I think that uh, that is a really interesting concept. And I, I was drawn toward a more rural life because of my interest in food politics and uh, sustainability in food. And a lot of the issues around food sustainability, and uh, that's why I decided to de-urbanize my life initially and uh, moved out uh, moved out to the country um, several years ago um, onto our little homestead, and uh, I've been building it ever since. Awesome. Now, just a little quick note about the audio. Like, if we're tapping, you hear that on the table yeah. or playing with the cables, it's going to pick it up. All but, right. So you said initially. So uh, you came from. So I've lived a little bit all over the place. Um, I grew up in Peterborough, Ontario. That was where I was born and raised. Um, when I was 17 years old, I uh, graduated high school at 17, um, and I ended up moving to New York City after school, and I lived there for seven years, um, and that was an amazing experience. I I studied theater, and uh, I went on to stay in the U.S., after I finished school because I got involved in a relationship and it was the relationship that I knew would be the relationship I'd be in for the rest of my life. And, uh, anyway, at the time there was no federal marriage equality in New York state. Um, and as a member of the LGBT community, um, I had no path to immigration through my relationship. And, uh, so I was living there, um, but I didn't have any sort of status. Um, and that was hard, you know, and I, I learned a lot about uh, about how workers are exploited in that kind of situation. And uh, it really informed my politics in a, in a pretty profound way, I would say. Um, then uh, eventually, I, that wasn't sustainable for me anymore. So I moved back to Canada. Um, and when I moved back to Canada, I initially settled in Montreal. And I brought my spouse to live with me in Montreal. We had gotten married in the interim. And I, I brought my spouse to Montreal. And we lived there for a few years. Um, and it was fine. I like Montreal a lot, but it never felt like my city and it never felt like my community. I just didn't connect to life there the way I did in New York or the way that I had growing up in Peterborough. It just it never felt like home to me. I don't know why. Um, it's just, I'm not knocking Montreal as a city. It's a great place, but yeah. it just, it was never my home. Um, and we decided we were ready to de-urbanize our life. So we started looking at farms and we, we kind of looked in a one hour radius all around and we ended up settling about three minutes from Glen Robertson, Ontario, right on the uh, Quebec-Ontario border, um, not far from Alexandria, and that's where we live today. Wow, like that's quite the contrast to go from New York, Montreal to yeah, such a little homestead. What, what was that transition like? But I like? mean, 
I grew up in a small city. Okay. Um, Peterborough is not a huge place. And my spouse grew up in the rural Midwestern United States oh, okay. in like farm country. Yeah. So honestly, it was both of us. It was kind of a return to roots in a way. You know, the, the, the communities around here um, are bigger, uh, you know, Alex, Alexandria, Rockland. Um, these communities remind me of where I grew up. You know, they're at Hawkesbury, these smaller cities that are outside of a larger city. Um, they're real industrial towns, um, places with cute downtowns, quaint, quaint downtowns, but all the amenities you need. Like, that's what I grew up with. And so, I, you know, it's, it feels more like home than the big city did in some ways. It feels like a return to my roots in some ways. But it's also great because... I did study French growing up, and uh, I lived in uh, I, I lived in Montreal, and I, I I invested a lot of time in the French language because I love the French language. So it's great to be in a place where French is all around me too, and I get to speak French every day. And it's actually one of the biggest riches of this area is just the access to uh, both official languages, the bilingualism. I just find it amazing, and I I, I don't think I could ever live in a place again where the French language isn't present because I just, I, I love its presence so much. Mm -hmm. Being able to speak different languages gives us a very unique lens on the world and the ability to relate to people and just the magic of certain words or certain expressions sometimes helps us connect to feelings that are very hard to explain yeah, unless sure. you have that, that background. Sure. There's actually been studies done that show that when we are thinking, that we, when we're speaking in a different in a second language or a third language, we actually are, are process things differently and think differently. And it's like, there's actually uh, tiny personality changes that happen. Like we have a different personality in each language and there's, this has been studied and it's just, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting dynamic, different thought processes. Um, so how, how beautiful is it to be able to uh, have, have exposure to different thought processes and different uh, lenses through which you can see the world? Yeah, absolutely. And so for you, do you find uh, do you find that when you speak French or you speak English, you're more inclined to certain elements of your personality? Um, I think that I'm a lot more uh, cerebral in English. <laughs> I, 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 you know, in some ways I get very, uh, I can be almost academic. I can be almost like annoyingly so. And like people tell me, you need to loosen up. You need to be more human. You need to talk. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're using all this like stupid, like all this language that's ridiculous and stuff. And it's like, it's true. I do that. It's whereas in French, because it is my second language, I'm, I, I speak much more from the gut. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, it's, it's, it's much more of a, it's because I, I, I don't have access to the same level of vocabulary and everything. And it, it forces me to just be very blunt and be very direct. And I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, I find for myself, <laughs> when I speak English, I try to use flurry, you know, flourishing words. When I speak French, I kind of have to get to the point. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's good. It's good to get to the point. And I'm actually trying to be more direct all the time and talk uh, like I, 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 I'm sick and tired of politicians talking around issues and and uh, avoiding get handling looking at anything head on and i don't want to be that way i want to be i want to be direct i want to be honest and i want to be an open book with people and what things are you hoping to be open about well just where where i stand on things you know when someone asks me a question i believe that they deserve a direct answer and i don't believe that you know when you're when you're studying politics and people are and you read uh you know 
materials to like prepare yourself for debates and stuff. They all, and I'm not talking about partisan materials from my party or anything. I'm just talking about like what you find on the internet when you're looking, you're researching, you're learning. It's always like, don't actually answer the question, like figure out how to pivot and then talk about your talking points. And it's like, no, that's not who I am. And that's not what I want to do. If you ask me what my stance is on a particular topic, I'm going to give you my stance on a particular topic. And I'm not going to care whether it's the stance you want to hear or not. I'm just going to give you the answer that's the true answer that's honestly coming from me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wish that all politicians would be like that, to be quite honest. It frustrates me to no end when people refuse to give a direct answer to a direct question. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally understand the being frustrated at doublespeak and someone not being forthright with the questions being asked of them. Now, when you decide to, to speak what you believe, and what you focus on, but you're running for a position in which you're going to be representing people, there might be conflict of interest sometimes, you know, where people might be frustrated because your position is different than theirs and they don't feel that you represent them. Now, I'm not saying you've experienced that, but I'm curious if you have going door to door. Well, I mean, you've got to, there's truth to that because, you know, not everybody is going to agree with you on everything and you're going to come into top points where you are meeting people at the door who uh, disagree with your position on a certain topic. And all you can do is be as honest with them as possible, make sure that they understand that you hear their opinion, you hear their perspective, and you respect their position and perspective. And because I do, I do. If people have a particular stance on an issue, I listen to it and I respect it. doesn't mean that I agree with it, but it means that I listen to it and I respect it. And I do my best to explain to them why I can't take that position, why the position that I take may be contrary to what they, what they feel. Um, but I try to do so in a respectful manner, and I don't write anybody off, and I don't think about people as, as, as uh, not worth talking to, you know. And I think that what's often the case is some people tell you they're angry about one thing, but then when you actually dig in and you actually get into a conversation with them, you realize that that's not what they're angry about. They're actually angry about something else entirely. And that what initially comes out is something that you might knee-jerk react to in a way that's very negative, you know. Um, for example, I've had people I have had people come to me and say, you know, there's too many immigrants in this country. And being the son of an immigrant and uh, having a spouse who's an immigrant, um, it's very easy for me to get my back up and take that very personally and be like, well, these 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 are people I love, and immigrants are important. And I've been an immigrant in my life, you know, I lived in the states, so it's very easy for me to knee jerk to that in a way that's very uh, where I just write that person off as a racist or whatever it is. But when you actually talk to them, you get to the point where you realize they're not as much worried about the immigrants. They're worried about the fact that they're feeling left behind. And that, uh, you know, this gentleman I was speaking with was came to me with concern about immigrants. But what I found out was he's upset that he hasn't had a raise to his pension in years and years. And life's gotten more and more unaffordable. And he can't find housing that works for him. And he's worked hard his whole life and paid into his pension and it's just not there for him now and he's seeing people come in and he's getting the sense that they're getting everything and he's been left behind and as I was chatting with him we were talking about the fact that the 44 richest people in Canada made 78 billion dollars since the beginning of the pandemic and we got into a conversation about that and the fact that uh, the government gave tons of money to Bombardier gave tons of money to Loblaws um, for fridges um, well, and while they were giving, they gave money to Loblaws for fridges, 
and, but the people working at Loblaws at the lowest paid positions, um, who we called heroes and called essential workers, are using the food bank. Um, this is the, the issue. The issue is that we have run away wealth inequality in this country, and it's not the immigrants. It's the fact that we're all being left behind. And as we were chatting, he seemed to get that, and he seemed to grasp that, and we, we had a real conversation about how he's feeling left behind and all the things that we could do to make him feel less left behind and how we can, you know, bring his pension up to something that's reasonable, that's in line with the cost of living, that we need more affordable housing in this country, that we need dental care, that we need uh, his, his medications to be covered so he can have more money in his pocket at the end of the month. And uh, this gentleman who came into my office very, very angry and talking to me about how he was very he was very bothered by the immigrants in this country, ended up leaving with a lawn sign. And very, very and I did not tell him that I agreed with him about immigrants. I was very forthright that I support immigration and that my father's an immigrant and that I will never uh, not support immigration. But he understood uh, by the end of that conversation that it wasn't about the immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I think that oftentimes what uh, our, our instinct is to just knee jerk, get upset. And, and it's very hard too, when you're a marginalized person, you come from a marginalized community, it's very hard to do that, that emotional labor of figuring out what someone's really angry about, but it's worth doing if you can. And this, has this been like a, a niche experience for you or are you kind of expecting these kind of interactions? Well, I've had lots of interactions like that with lots of people. I've also had interactions, uh, you know, about people just feel a sense of powerlessness right now. People are feeling such powerlessness with jobs gone uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, with just the uh, rising cost of living, with the fact that people don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you know? And I think that people are feeling very, very powerless right now. So what are they doing? They're, they're looking to see where they feel empowered, where they feel like they have some control, you know? And I, I, I think too, like uh, we're dealing with, uh, with protests. We're seeing all these protests that are happening across the country right now and these people showing up. And uh, sometimes they've gotten violent uh, with the liberal leader. And uh, we have to, I, I have to say right now that I do not support the violence. I do not support the violent rhetoric and I do not support the violent behavior at these protests. When we talk to these people, these people feel powerless. They feel lost. They feel a, a sense of lack of control in their lives for whatever reason. And we have to get to the root of why these people feel this lack of control in their lives. And we need to empower people to feel like they have some control in their lives, like they have a future. Like if, and and we, we need to break through this. We can't just demonize these people. We can demonize that behavior, and we should. That's not acceptable, and we cannot, we cannot condone violence in our country. But we have to be willing to, on a human-to-human -human level, listen to these people and try to come to some sort of understanding with them if we ever want to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so for you, what, when have you felt powerless? I felt powerless at many times in my life. I mean, I'm just trying to think of all the times that life has... Uh, has uh, knocked me over, you know? Yeah. Um, like a two-part of that is like, what has made you feel powerless and also... How has that shaped you? You know, like, how do you cope? How do you deal with stressors? Well, I mean, I lost everything in a way. Like, when I uh, had to leave the U.S., it was not by choice. I'm going to be very honest. It was not by choice when it happened. It was, it was forced on me. Um, it was forced on me based on immigration status, and it was sudden. Um, and uh, 
I, when that happened, I was completely, it was like the rug was pulled from under me and I lost everything. Uh, my, I lost my job. I lost my home because my, I, I, my, my apartment was in New York. I, I, I had no access to my stuff. I had the clothes on my back. Like it was that sudden. And, yeah. and when that happened, um, I was with my spouse. We were coming back from our honeymoon, actually. Um, we had uh, honeymooned in Montreal after our wedding. And uh, on our way back, um, I was I, I was staying there on a uh, on, Canadians are allowed to stay in the U.S. for six months at a time without a visa, and I was doing that. And then I was coming back and going back, and I was doing the back and forth. But you're not supposed to do that ongoing for a long time. But I did it out of necessity because I was in a relationship with an American and who I loved, and there was not federal marriage equality. And what I was doing was technically illegal, but it was also something that I felt. Uh, that I had to do because of an injustice that was existed. And I don't apologize for it. I acknowledge that it was illegal. Um, but I also acknowledge that it was the situation we were thrust in and forced in um, as, a, as, a, as a couple and uh, that we didn't have a lot of choice in that situation. But on my way back, they figured out that I'd been staying, doing, playing that game, and they didn't let me back in. And I was on a train. And uh, my spouse and I got off the train and uh, ended up at the border and my spouse got on a Greyhound bus going back to New York. And I got on a Greyhound bus going back to my parents' house, which is where I stayed initially for the first little while. And it was the hardest day of my life. So talk about feeling powerless, talk about feeling like you lost everything. But I was very, very fortunate because I uh, knew a lot of people who were politically connected in New York state. And one of them got me a lawyer who was a friend of a friend, and he was a really good lawyer. And uh, we ended up we we ended up in a situation where we we were able to figure out how to pay for him. Like, and, and so that's a privilege, right? And you have to acknowledge that privilege. And he managed to get me a really good uh, deal. He managed to get me, uh, and and basically, I had to stay out of the U.S. for three years, and then I had no record, and there was nothing. It didn't happen. And uh, he negotiated that for me, and I was very fortunate. But that's privilege, you know. And uh, and I don't talk about that openly very often. And it's something that I uh, I definitely don't talk about in politics very often because, you know, it's. But I do think that it's an important story to tell, and it's my truth, and it's a big part of what shaped me. It you know it taught me a lot about how people are exploited in our world, and how deeply. Uh, Deeply, these issues affect real people, and they affected me. You know, so I, uh, I definitely think that this is an important story to tell, and so it's a story that I like to t to share. Um, but it also is, does not define me. It's not all of you know. And this was, this was a decade ago now. <laughs> oh mean, wow! Yeah, so this was a long time ago. Um, uh, I was twenty three, twenty four when I got married. And that's when this all, all went down. So, um, you know, it was, uh, but I'm, but we built our lives here and it was a moment where the rug was pulled out from under me and I lost everything, but I gained everything. I mean, my spouse came here. We ended up deciding to stay here. Even when the law changed, we decided that we wanted to stay in Canada. Um, and we built a life for ourselves and we bought a farm and we, created a homestead and we've created a whole universe and 
I would not trade that experience for anything because it taught me so much about myself and my values and who I am and what I want to see in this world and how little tolerance I have for injustice. Um, so I don't ever want to, uh, to go back on that. Like I, I, I'm, I'm glad that that happened, and I'm glad that it happened exactly the way that it did, as difficult as it was at the time. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Like it's not easy to share these, even though it's like a decade away. It, it can be sometimes re-triggering to go back to those places. Well, I mean, and it's life is triggering. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I like. <laughs> I'm just like thinking back. Like when I was 12 years old, my parents sent me down. My parents had a pizzeria when I was growing up. And when I was 12 years old, uh, they sat me down on the porch outside of the pizzeria, outside the kitchen. There was a little door and a, a cement staircase leading up to the kitchen door. And uh, they sat me down outside. It was a hot summer day. And they said, uh, we are going to have to close this business. And we're going to have to close the restaurant because we're not making enough money. It's uh, costing us more money to be open than to be closed. We're going to lose it. And I was 12, and I'd never known any other life. That was where I grew up. Like when I was born, my parents brought me to their restaurant before they brought me to their house, you know? So that was, uh, and that was, I think that was the first moment in my life where something was really destabilizing, you know? And that was a very big destabilizing moment. And uh, I just, I think back to that. And I think to the fact that that happened because the GM factory downsized their operation. Sorry, not the GM. It was GE. The GE factory downsized their operations. And that was their customer base. So it was like, uh, you know, international trade and bad trade deals that didn't put workers first ended up causing my parents to lose their pizzeria. So it was an indirect consequence of bad trade deals that happened all that time ago. And so that was a, probably the first destabilizing moment in my life. And then I think about the second major destabilizing moment in my life, and it was caused by a lack of federal marriage equality in the United States. So, so many of these destabilizing moments are tied directly to political choices and political decisions and things that are happening in halls of power far away from you. And I think that that's when I realized, well, I mean, my life has taught me that politics is personal and politics, politics is not this thing that happens in some hall of power. Politics is very personal and it really impacts your real people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So I would not want to trade these experiences that have taught me these things. Though I think that most people could learn that same lesson but, but so many people are just so busy trying to make ends meet and just trying to survive day to day that they don't have time to think about politics in that way. Yeah. From, from what I've seen of people running and operating homesteads, it's no easy task. There's lots to do. So how, how do you find the time to go campaigning and to decide to... Okay. I work full time. I, I work for, uh, for a large shipping company and I also work at Bose Brewery in Van Cleek Hill on the weekends as a bartender. I'm not a, I'm not a, an economist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not any of those things that you're supposed to be when you run for office. I'm a working class guy who believes we need more working class people in politics. I think that polit that the halls of power should represent the people in this world and that the people of Glengarry Prescott Russell, many of them are working class people like me. And that's why I would be a good voice for this community. But having said that, I'm going to give you a day in the life of Constantine, if you'd like. Yes, um, please. I get up at, I, I get up, if I, if I sleep in, I get up at 630. Um, but I usually get up earlier than that. I get out, I, uh, I mix, uh, I, I mix the, uh, 
the milk replacer for the calves. I feed them. I make sure that their uh, their grain is full um, because they're on starter grain. We're in the process of weaning them off the uh, milk replacer right now, which is a whole thing in itself. Um, then I have to uh, put out the grain for the chickens. I let out the chickens and the ducks. I check on the second group of chickens who are adolescent right now and aren't mixed in with the large group yet. I make sure they have water and food. Um, I take out the dog. I make sure that she uh, takes care of her business. Then I uh, then I basically hop into my car, get to the office. I work my full day um, for FedEx. It's a work from home job, but I'm doing it for you know. I uh, so I, I work my full day. Then I get back out onto the road and I canvas all night as late as I need to. Um, I do interviews like this one. Um, then I get home probably 10, 11 o'clock at night, and then I do the whole thing over again. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, I do my shifts at Bose. And then after that, I canvas usually around Van Cleefield, Hawkesbury. So that's my, uh, that's my schedule right now. Uh, impressive. Thank you. <laughs> I do my best. And sometimes people ask me why I take too long to answer an email, but I try to answer them as quickly as I can. I yeah. do. I do. And I'm, I, I try to be on top of things. But often it involves me uh, sitting next to my spouse on the sofa with my phone in my hands, answering a quick Twitter or a quick Facebook message. And it's yeah. just like trying to find those boundaries, you know, but uh, it's hard when you're when you're a working class candidate. You don't have the luxury of being able to take a leave of absence from work because the lack of pay would be devastating, you know, and that's that's the life of a working class candidate. These uh, candidates who come from more traditional backgrounds are able to take long leaves of absence for, from work and just concentrate on the campaign. Like finance I, lawyer. I, yeah, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that, but uh, I don't have that luxury. So what do I? So I. But I don't think that that's that's an excuse not to present myself and not to be involved because I think that my day to day reality brings something to the table and it brings something really valuable to the table. And how have you been finding the experience online versus in person? Well, I mean, you know, before the uh, writ was dropped, I really only was campaigning online this time around because of the COVID pandemic, because of everything else. I was really focused on just doing as little as much as possible remotely. So I started doing fireside chats every Thursday night, and I would have a different guest to talk about an issue that was important to me. They're all up on my website. And every Thursday at 530, I would sit down with someone, we'd talk about something. And I had so many different issues and just so many different conversations on that series, sometimes in French, sometimes in English, sometimes bilingual, depending mostly on who the guest was. And uh, that was really, uh, really great. Um, but there's only so far you can go um, online. Um, eventually, you have to go and talk to voters at their doors and, and meet people. So. And uh, But with the pandemic, we've been very careful about that. We're always wearing masks. We're always maintaining social distance. We're always uh, following all the COVID safety protocols and uh, doing our best to be as safe as possible with everything. We opened up an office in Rockland, but in our office, we're, t we're, we're contact tracing everybody who comes in. We're not letting anybody in past a very uh, the, the front of the office and uh, my office, and everybody in the office has to wear masks while they're there. And uh, there's a lot of protocols in place. We're just trying to be as safe as possible with everything. Um, but yeah, in person, I I much prefer to campaign in person. I much prefer to have that face-to-face -face contact with people. It, it you you get better conversations, and uh, you you know there's just there there's no comparison to what what you can do in person with someone versus what you can do through a keyboard. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true.
I'm curious as to what your ideas are on how to protect working class citizens. Now, I know you mentioned before the idea of raising people's pensions, so that way it's tracked to, I guess, you know, you can say inflation or what the cost of living is. Yeah, but I think that in general, uh, workers need a raise. I mean, it's been years since there the where the uh, the federal minimum wage hasn't been touched. We want to bring the federal minimum wage to twenty dollars. Now, I want to clarify something. The federal minimum wage is only for federally regulated industries. So that's interprovincial transport, like uh, FedEx, UPS, companies like that. It's aviation. It's so the big airlines, banking. It's a very small. Uh, it, it, it's really very specific industries that are huge corporations generally that are federally regulated. Those corporations can afford a $20 minimum wage, no problem. So we would like to do that for federally regulated employees. Um, and we hope that the provinces follow suit because the you know everything else is under provincial leg- uh, mandates. But uh, we, we hope the provinces will do the same thing because it needs to happen. Um, but I do believe as well that uh, we need programs in place to help small businesses pay their employees, if they're pay- especially if, if wages are that high. My parents, being in the restaurant industry, they now have a diner. It's their second business. But, uh, you know, I understand that for a small business owner, a $20 minimum wage could be difficult. So uh, if, if the provinces ever go there, we do need to make sure that we have sis- supports in place for those businesses. Um, but beyond that, we need everything in life to be more affordable. So if we can uh, reduce the cost of housing, if we can address the housing crisis, um, we're proposing 500,000 units of affordable housing from coast to coast. I want to fight to bring as many of them as possible to this area with a specific uh, focus on Hawkesbury, Rockland, Castleman, some of the uh, areas where we are seeing the, the cost of living skyrocket the most right now. Um, so we need to get more affordable housing that's geared to income housing where people are guaranteed not to pay more than 30% of what they make for housing. If we can do that, that means there's more money in people's pockets at the end of the month. They can actually save. They can actually get ahead. Um, we also need to see, uh, we, we need to see more included in the healthcare, in our, in our healthcare system. Um, we need dental care in this country so desperately. We need mental health care. We need uh, optometry. We need all of those things to be part of our healthcare system. And uh, it made me very angry when the, uh, when, when the liberal candidate um, voted against uh, the dental care proposal that was put forward by Jack Harris in the last par- parliament, because that really could have lifted a lot of people up and it could have really helped a lot of people. And he actually said, I don't see the data that shows there's unmet dental care needs in this, in this country. Well, I, all he has to do is ask 10 people in the riding, just 10 at random. He'll find nine who need dental care who don't have access. So it was just so disingenuous to say that. And uh, it made me so angry and it, it hurt. It hurt. But we have to also remember that the working class is not just working people. There are many people who are members of the working class who can't work. Um, and I'm talking specifically about the disabled community now. The disabled community, many, many of them are unable to work for various reasons but they still deserve a dignified life and they still deserve to have the thing, their needs met. And uh, so, but right now, many who are on ODSP specifically are in poverty and it's legislated poverty. And uh, they're, they're going without. They're, uh, a single person on ODSP, I was told, makes $1,200 a month, uh, brings in $1,200 a month. Out of that, they have to pay their rent and everything else. Um, 
So I, I, I know a woman who is on ODSP for various health reasons, and uh, she has $150 left in her budget for food for the entire month after she pays her rent. Um, this woman uh, had, needle, had to get needles recently for a health condition, and those needles were not covered by OHIP and they weren't covered by ODSP. They cost $40. Well, she now has a food budget of $110 for that month. And this is not this is not a unique story. There are mm-hmm. many people in this situation. So if we can cover more in our healthcare system, we need to cover those uh, those needles. We need to cover medication. We need to cover anything medical medical related needs to be covered in our healthcare system. Um, but it goes beyond that. We also need to uplift people out of poverty because that is those are pov- that, that that's government enforced poverty because these are people who remember cannot work. So $1,200 a month being the max they can get is government-enforced poverty. So Daniel Blakey, who is an NDP MP in the last parliament, proposed a bill to create a guaranteed minimum income for the disabled community. It was a targeted program for the disabled community of $2,200 a month. And the idea was that it would be a top-up to whatever provincial programs were in place. So um, to guarantee everybody $2,200 a month. Again, liberals and conservatives team joined forces to vote against it. And I just think that that's incredibly cold considering the, the reality that people on in these programs are facing in our world right now. I completely agree that it is like mind-boggling that if you're not able to work, you're not able to sustain yourself, and then you ask for assistance so that way you can have a decent quality standard of living, and then what is provided doesn't succeed at that. It seems very conflicting. You know, you are in a position where you can't really get angry at the people offering you money because if they take it away, then you got nothing. And that's what they do. They take it away. And people in these programs, like these, these programs are abusive. And uh, what they do, what these people who are in these programs do not feel like they can talk out, speak out. They don't feel like they can speak out and they don't feel like there's hope for them to speak out. And they're afraid of speaking out because they're afraid of losing what little benefits they have. But these programs are abusive. There's no better way of saying it. Like, for example, if somebody decides to uh, move in with a, with a partner or get married, they don't have marriage equality because they lose their benefits if they get married. Um, and, the, and the person that's marrying them has to agree to take them on as a dependent. That's the way the system is designed right now which is just mind-boggling to me. That's so abusive. It's, it's, it's government-enforced poverty, and it's, uh, and it's not marriage equality, and it's, it's terrible, and it's terrible, and it's, it's what so many are living with day-to-day right now, and I have to highlight it because it's such a major issue, and uh, it affects so many people in Glengarry Prescott-Russell. It does. Around here, there are so many people who are on ODSP, because and and they live in this riding and they are they are your friends and neighbors they're around you every day these are people you know and they are suffering right now they're suffering and i have no doubt that they're happy that you're having this conversation i'm just i'm 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 having the conversations i'm having at the doors you know i'm like everything is informed by what i'm hearing at the doors everything is informed by what people are reaching out to me to say you know, and that's the thing. Like, I, I, I'm, 
I, my, my job as an MP is to uplift the voices of the community. My job as an MP is to uh, be the voice of those who feel voiceless, be the, and amplify the voices of those who can't speak out for whatever reason. Um, and I, I very much do believe that the position is a position that is about advocating for people. And I want to advocate for the most marginalized members of the community. And the most marginalized me members of the community are, are suffering right now. They're suffering in, in the house next door to you and you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge stigma about complaining or mentioning any of these problems. I could easily imagine someone being frustrated. Yeah. You know, the contrast of, like, okay, well, I work for my money and you're getting quote unquote free money and then you're not you're upset that it's not enough for you right and it's easy for that yeah i i think that there's many people don't really forget that uh that being able-bodied is a yeah. gift and it's a thing that uh you can lose tomorrow right you may be working hard for your money today and you may be fine today um, but tomorrow you might be needing ODSP, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I, we're not, not like being able-bodied tomorrow isn't guaranteed to any of us who are able-bodied today. Oh yeah. And I think that a lot of people forget that. So if, if empathy for other human beings isn't enough for you, then maybe, uh, the fact that it could happen to you should be. So, um, you know, don't, don't, you know, I, I, I hope just empathy for another human being should be enough for you. And that, oh, that's what I would hope to see. But, uh, that's not always enough for everybody. So maybe just think that you're not guaranteed that to be able-bodied tomorrow just because you're able-bodied today. Yeah. It's, I find people, and I don't know why just yet, consider something like life insurance understandable. You know, I'm going to pay in case something happens. And maybe because death is just something that is more inevitable as as a conversation and insurance when you're traveling, you're like, okay, yeah, if I'm traveling, I'm taking certain risks. I'm, I'm outside of my comfort zone. I'm outside of my routine. It's It makes sense to cover myself in that regards. But when we're just living our day-to-day, -day, or you know, we don't, we're not thinking, we're not assuming that we're going to slip on ice and crack our heads or get into a car accident or something's going to fall on us or we're just going to twist something the wrong way because we're just getting slightly older. Like, or we we contract some type of illness that we didn't see coming for sure for sure all of that and it can even be it can be not something that has it doesn't have to be physical right like it could be your mental health declines yeah and that breaks you just as much as a broken leg absolutely or a broken back and you're just not able to work in the yeah. same capacity anymore absolutely and, and and you know there's burnout is so common um in so many uh industries you know people burn out and it's because a lot of our jobs, they're not taking our mental health into consideration, right? And they, they'll push, push, push until you have nothing left to give. And then you're, they're, they're taking blood from a stone. And that's how it can often feel when you're working for a large corporation. I know that. I know that because I work for a large corporation and I know how that feels. It feels like they're taking blood from a stone sometimes. And you're, you're just trying to get through day to day, you know, and you're just trying to work and you're just trying to, 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 to make ends meet. And that's all you, that's all you can do. You put your nose to the grindstone every day and you go to work and you do, you do it again and you do it again. And, and it can be very taxing on one's mental health. And, uh, and we do have to think about that. And we need, we need more support for mental health in this country. We, we definitely need mental health as part of our healthcare system. 
But uh, rural mental health is something we don't talk a lot about, and it's something so important. Um, rural communities are less likely to have access to mental health services than urban communities. But uh, we have staggering statistics showing high rates of suicide among farmers. Staggering statistics. And that is something that we need to address head on. Why are so many, why are so many farmers dying by suicide? And uh, I think that it's tied to the lack of mental health services in rural communities. It's absolutely linked. But it's also linked to the pressures on our farmers and the fact that they're they're suffering too. They're trying to they're trying to make keep their businesses going. Well, trade deal after trade deal sells more and more of our food sovereignty to the US and more and more American milk, eggs, and and poultry are coming into our country. Um, these farmers are just struggling to get by. They're trying to pass their farms on to the next generation. Their children want to take over the farms. But there's just so many barriers to even just passing on the farm. There's taxes that are through the roof to pass on their family farm. And they're just suffering and they're struggling. And they're, they're borrowing against their farms just to keep their farms going. And they don't know if they'll be able to pass anything on to the next generation. And I think that it's not surprising that some of these people are having struggling with their mental health. And so why aren't we putting those supports in place for their mental health? But also, why aren't we protecting the interests of our farmers? Why are we signing away so much of our food sovereignty? Why, is, why, why, why are farmers always given the short end of the stick whenever there's a new trade deal? Even if Bay Street turn, makes out well from the trade deal, our farmers are always left behind in every it's trade deal. Bay, pardon? Bay Street. Bay Street? Yeah. That um, reference is going over my head. Sorry, it's uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. I've heard Wall Street before, but Bay Street, okay. Yeah, Wall Street's, it's, Bay Street's the yeah. Canadian Wall Street. Learning something every day. No worries, no worries. <laughs> but yeah, they, they do fine every time there's a trade deal, but our farmers don't, and that's not okay. And, uh, you know, we, we, need, we, need to, we need to advocate for our farmers more. Well, the farming industry is going through huge transformations, right? Like the way that it was set up before industrialized is not sustainable in the long run. And so we, and then also we have globalization increasing. So when you have these combinations of like, okay, the way you're farming isn't sustainable and it's going to have to go through some modifications. And not only that, other people are now able to produce almost equivalent quality because of the industrial process at less of a cost. So there's the competitive advantage gone. And we're now starting to go through climate change and that's completely recalibrating how expenses are going to be figured out. And small family farms are the are the answer to that. They're not the they're not the problem. They are the solution. And in permaculture, which is what I came out here to do, we have this phrase: the problem is the solution. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it, and it's looking at looking at everything and saying saying there isn't a problem here. There's a solution here. And the pro- the solution is small family farms. The solution is. More, more farms that are smaller that are feeding their local communities. And uh, that's, I think, what a lot of the farmers around here are trying to do. They're just trying to run a fairly modest operation, you know, with, uh, and, and just enough to service their own community and a little bit more and make their living, you know. And that's the farmers I talk to. That's what they're trying to do. And, uh, you know, they're, they're part of a larger food supply. And they're, they're, they're providing food for Canada. 
a lot of them would like to uh, invest in greener technologies and regenerative agriculture and a lot of these things, but can't because there's financial barriers. We need to make those things easier for them to do. We need to uh, invest in our farms and invest in, in, in farmers who want to get the, uh, the greener technologies in place. We need to uh, break down barriers to new young people who want to get into farming. You know, a lot of people are interested in regenerative agriculture, permaculture projects like that, want to do really interesting, uh, innovative things, but they lack access to land. Why don't we have grant programs to get these people access to land, get them, get them farming, get them going, you know, and, and these are things that we need to be doing as well. So I, I do think that uh, the future, uh, if, if we want to combat climate change, the path is through our farmers. The farmers want to be part of the solution. We can uh, give farmers uh, incentives to uh, engage in soil sequestration technologies. We can uh, in give them incentives to plant more trees on their property or keep existing forests in place. We can incentivize them to do that. And we should because clear cutting is a huge problem in our area. But if we can get farmers to keep more of their land forested, it can go a long way towards uh, to, towards uh, ending, reversing climate change. Trees, we know trees play a huge part in that. So, I mean, the path, the path forward is through our farmers. We shouldn't be working against them. We should be working with them. I would imagine that we would have to create uh, a, like a larger holistic kind of economy to a certain degree, because if you have farmers, right now we have a lot of wheat, right? Like a lot of soy wheat in the area and the, the so-called cash crops that's what exactly. they're referred to yeah. as yeah now if if we had farm like a whole bunch of farms just go to small amounts varied amounts of produce and and animals I, I could see there being a challenge of trying to gain a competitive advantage in supplying this the local community because we don't really have yet right the other half of that equation like restaurants that Oh, yeah, the, the crowds of people. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. Um, like if we had more farm-to-table restaurants, if we had more open-air markets, if we had uh, just more any of that yeah. kind of culture of this was raised in our area, this is a farm that we can go and visit. Like, for example, there's a farm that I pass by on the regular when I go to Ottawa that I stopped recently, and they sell eggs, organic, free-range, and they're less expensive than you would get in the grocery store. And it's a small business nearby. The people are really nice. It's a great place to go visit. Like a lot of farms are not approachable right now as they are because they're huge industrial complexes. But yeah. as And I'm not saying that all these farms are going to turn into places like Hidden Trail, <laughs> which is a great farm in the area. Or, uh, you know, there's lots of really great farms that I could name drop all over to one Gary Prescott Russell that Please are do. In interesting right. little regenerative farms uh, that are doing really cool stuff. Um, I actually spoke with, uh, with the owner of Hidden Trails Farms in Rockland um, on my fireside series and we had a really great conversation about regenerative agriculture um but I, I i do think that those farms are are a huge part of the way forward but i think that the industrial farms can also play a role and they don't have to change into these pastoral wonderlands overnight they 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 can stay industrial farms but do it do things differently and they want to do things differently it's just a matter of greener technologies better uh Bet, bet, better uh, 
better technologies that are that are that exist currently that are cost prohibitive that are greener, um, and then also encouraging them to uh, convert parts of their land to trees. And you know that that can go a long way, and we can incentivize them to do that. We can we can provide funds to help them do that. Um, things like uh, greener technology to dry grain. There's lots of things out there that we can bring in that will make huge improvements and that these farmers want to do, but it's just a question of the money and the funding to do these things. So yeah, we're not, we're not turning every farm into, uh, into polyface farm, which is the famous farm from the U.S. that kind of set the, um, a movement going. We're not turning every farm into that tomorrow, but we can definitely work with our industrial farmers today and uh, help their farms be part of the climate change solution too. Yeah. When you say that things are cost prohibitive, cost prohibitive, do you have any examples of like, what are the upgrades that they want to do and they can't do because it's- Well, that's, that's a really good example right there is uh, right now uh, the, the technology to dry grain is, uh, uses carbon, uh, uses fossil fuels um, the, that the bulk of farmers are using. But now there are technologies to have solar grain dryers and they're very expensive, um, but they work really well. Um, but uh, that is something that we can invest in and help people get, you know? So that's just one very specific example. Um, there are other technologies as well, but that's, that's, that's the one that jumps to mind first. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to, I'm gonna jump back to uh, affordable housing. I find that subject matter very complex because on one hand, I do see great value in allowing people from all walks of life being able to live in the same community. You know, I'm not a big fan of segregation. And low-income housing, from what I've commonly seen, is usually segregated to an area. That is not really blended well into the community because you just get differences in values and they're not... Like, I don't have to really go into the full details, but, you know, I'm sure you can easily imagine people's gripes on either ends as to why they're against affordable housing and the issues that it brings up for them. And so for you, what do you feel are the main points that you're trying to share with people in regards to affordable housing? Well, I think I, I agree that affordable housing should be in the community and should not be separated and should not be this thing that is stigmatized. I think that a lot of these what ends up what what historically was done is the housing projects right you build a project and and then you have all these stereotypes around them and people judge the people who live in them and there's a lot of social stigma around living in the housing and i don't think that that's the way forward i i don't i think that uh when a new building goes up that some of the units should be uh dele delegated as affordable housing and it should be seamless and people shouldn't know what's going on and who's 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 in what and that's the ideal is that nobody knows someone is in subsidized housing. They're just in the community. They live among you and they're in a home and that's all, you know, from the outside. That's, that's the ideal for me. Um, and that's, uh, that's what I would like to see more of. Um, and I do think that we do need a lot of it. Um, in the meantime, while we're waiting for it to be built, um, we should be making sure nobody's paying more than 30% of their, uh, of what they're bringing in in, in rent. So, uh, as a stopgap solution, not a permanent solution, but as a stopgap solution, uh, rent subsidies are our way forward as well, just to make sure that nobody's paying more than 30% of rent um, in the short term either. 
while they're waiting for more housing to be available. I find I find the rent subsidy to be very conflicting as a solution for myself because on one hand I see how in the short term it's very helpful, you know, it's letting people stay within their communities and where they need to be and everything like that. But in the long term it doesn't really take the market and changes into considerations and sometimes can even perpetuate the problems that and that's why yeah and I, I hear you that's why it needs to be a short-term solution it can't be a long-term solution and it also uh ends up uh you know the the, the actual problem of the rents being out of control and uh predatory rents uh, rent rates and stuff are not addressed by it and uh it ends up in in, in the pockets of the people who are charging too much in rent in the for the, in the first place in a community charging more than what the community should be uh what the rents should be in a community those people end up with that money in their pockets um so it is absolutely an imperfect solution and it's something that is only ad be, that i would only advocate for just because of the fact that it is a full-on crisis right now and we just need people to be in a situation where they can afford to stay in their homes but it should be very much a short, short-term solution. And we should be moving away from that and toward permanently affordable housing, not-for-profit housing, cooperative housing, building housing with the intention of housing people, not with the intention of making money for people. Mm -hmm. I, I find that there's a monopoly when it comes to cities in regards to the services that people can be provided. So, you know, if you're, if you find yourself as a marginal member of society, a city has a certain allure because there is a concentration of other people like you. You can, or you can blend in with the crowd. You know, you're not standing out as much within your smaller community, and there are more services there and support. But I wonder if, in the long term, without having a plan to spread out to develop other smaller communities into mid-sized communities so that these services can make their way out of the city can be part of the solution. Because if it's, it's, you know, it's in the city's interest to just have everybody keep coming into it and building, builders, building buildings higher and higher, you know, we, we don't really have a rule or, or a, a cultural understanding as to what is too high and what is too little. And we just we're just kind of experimenting and seeing what works. Yeah. But there there is a certain as you I'm sure you've experienced being in cities and being in rural places, there's a difference in how people relate and connect to each other and can oh, absolutely. Know. Absolutely. And I've lived in one of the biggest cities in the world, right? Yeah. I lived in New York City for seven years. Um and uh the urban life is actually very green in many ways. You you bike, you take public transit, you walk, you uh you you tend to live in dense your your uh, your housing is very dense so heating costs are very low uh build the, the the heat is shared throughout the building and it's uh it's very efficient um there's a lot of good things to be said about cities and from an environmental perspective and and, and many other ways um but there is also a quality of life issue that you don't notice when you live in the city but you notice when you leave the city um that there's just something to big big expanses of open land and just being able to, to watch the stars without any sort of obstruction and being able to hear the crickets and all of that and, and how much we as humans crave that and need that. And so I think that we always will need our rural communities and our rural communities need to remain rural communities. We don't want to build build up all of our rural towns to the point where they just disappear. 
um, as rural communities, and that's that's a fear as well. So we need to we need to develop our communities around here, but in a smart way. So we need more housing. Sure, we need lots more housing. But uh, if we're looking at somewhere like Hawkesbury, for example, we can build uh, housing in a lot of the abandoned industrial lots around Cameron Street. There's nothing going on in them, and they're no longer nature. They're just lots. That's a place where you could put housing. Um, you know, around Rockland, there's areas like that as well, where there's not a lot going on. And it's, it, wouldn't mean, it doesn't mean you have to deforest to build housing, but you could build more housing. Um, so there's lots, of, there's lots of places that we can build without having to completely change the landscape of our communities. And I think that it's important to a large extent to do that. Now, we are going to have to expand out in some places. I, I, I acknowledge that. Um, but we have to always be mindful about how we do it. And uh, I hope that the cities uh, and the municipalities uh, do do take uh, the rural character of our communities into consideration when they make these zoning decisions. And these are municipal zoning decisions. These are not federal decisions. Um, but I really do hope that our municipalities continue to uh, take preserving rural communities to heart as an important issue. And so, how do you feel about like if you get this if you get the job theoretically? you would have to go to Ottawa yeah. and be in Ottawa and be in those halls of power that you feel so outside of right now. Do you have any, do you ever think about how that might change you or how you will? Well, no, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm going there to do a job and I'm going there to represent a community. And I, I know I can do that. Um, I'm just, you know, I, I, I don't lose sight of who I am or where I'm from and, and, and my whole life informs me and in everything that I do. Um, and every move that I make. And uh, my, my intention is to to commute back and forth most of the time, you know, and uh, only stay stay there overnight if I'm really, if I'm, if I'm working really late. Um, but I don't intend to let it change me. I'm me. I'm Constantine Malikos. I'm just a, and I'm not going to change. Um, I, I, gr I grew up in the working class and I've been in the working class my whole life. And uh around my friends are in the working class and these are the people I listen to and I have people around me who keep me honest my spouse keeps me honest my spouse will keep me from getting my head in the sky <laughs> I'll tell you that right now um you know it doesn't matter how uh how, how much how 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 uh anytime that my head gets too big my spouse uh reminds me who I am and where I come from in a way that's really beautiful and that I really appreciate and love and I'm very grateful for um, and I also have friends who do that for me too. And, uh, you know, they keep me honest. That's beautiful. That's so refreshing to hear. <laughs> and that's so valuable to have, yeah. you know, friends and family and loved ones who can keep us in check and who are looking out for us with the best of intentions and want to make sure that we don't get too much into our own head or start believing what everybody else is saying Yeah, or wants us to say. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, tomorrow, uh, a bunch of posters are coming, a bunch of signs are coming into my office that are these giant 48 by 48 inch signs with my face on them. And it's like, you know, you, you have to have like when, when that's happening and you've got your name everywhere and you've got your face everywhere, it's really important to remember where you come from and who you are and what you're trying to do. And you're trying to do a job and you're trying to represent people and you're trying to be a voice for people who are more marginalized than you are, who have less of a voice than you do. You're not, it's not about you. It's about them. And you have to remember that it's about them. And 
that's where your friends and family come into play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Are there any things that you're you're concerned about in regards to the future? If like if this happens, if you do move forward? What I the only thing that I fear is letting people down. I don't want to let anybody down. And the people who are voting for me are putting so much trust in me and they want me to do something for them. And I'm going with I'm going there to Ottawa to do it. And I intend to do it and I intend to do it all. And I just don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I don't want to fail uh, the people of this riding. And that's the only thing I fear is that, that I'll let somebody down and I, and, and I'm going to work hard as I can to make sure that doesn't happen. Do you feel like you've ever let somebody down before? In life, of course I have, you know, I've let people down. I mean, I'm a human being. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've let many people down, but I try not to. And uh, I'm, I'm a person who believes in a high level of integrity. And I think that when you're, when, you, when you're brought in to do a job, you need to do that job and you need to do it well. And uh, that's really important to me. Thinking to the pe- about the people in Lorignal right now and uh, the cement plant there. And I know that that's far away from where your, your, your radio station covers. Um, but it's in Champlain, which is in the riding. Um, and, uh, they've been fighting this battle, um, for the last 10 years over the cement plant. And, uh, this company called Colisem from Quebec wants to build a cement plant in their community right on the water, um, on the Udway. And, uh, they don't want it. The community doesn't want it because it'll have a huge negative impact on their community and the health of their community and the uh, air quality of their community. And this group, Action Champlain, has been fighting for 10 years to stop this plant. They've been in and out of court trying to get it stopped, and they've lost all their court battles, and now they're asking for a political solution. And uh, I called the environment critic for our party. I called the fisheries critic for our party. I had lots of conversations with them. I had a conversation with Jagmeet Singh about it. We came up with a plan collectively, and it was a really good plan to uh, try to stop the cement plant, what we could do from a federal level. Because uh, the current, uh, the, the liberal candidate is saying that it's a provincial issue, strictly a provincial issue, and there's nothing federally that can be done. I, I, I refuse to believe that. So I, I, I researched it, and we came up with a plan, and we realized that it's got opposition from the Ganesanage First Nation, uh, Noka, Quebec, and they don't want the plant either. And as a, a result of UNDRIP, um, we need to consult with them before we move forward with the project. So there's that. And it's also going to impact interprovincial waters so we can actually get an, an injunction under the Fisheries Act. So I went forward with this plan, and uh, I told the people of Lorignal about it, and we staged a huge protest asking for just those things in front of the proposed site. And, and about 200 people showed up um, at this protest, which was amazing, and it was humbling. And I'm just thinking of all those people. And that's my first fight. I promise to make that my first fight in Ottawa. The cement plant is my first fight in Ottawa. My first act as a member of parliament is to go to the Indigenous Affairs Minister and go directly to their office, whoever the new Indigenous Affairs Minister is, and uh, ask for a consultation with Katasanage. And I just think about that. And that that's, I've committed to that. That's my first fight in Ottawa. And I just think about the people of Laurignal and how much this means to them, and how much we need to kill this plant. And I just think about them, and it's like, that's what I'm going to Ottawa for. I'm going to Ottawa to kill this plant for the people of Lorignal. I'm going to Ottawa to make sure people have homes, 
I'm going to Ottawa to make sure that people who are suffering right now under ODSP stop suffering. I'm going to Ottawa to make sure that people who are dealing with flooding every two years in Wendover and Rockland stop having to do that, um, you know, because of climate change, that we're actually addressing these issues. I'm going to Ottawa in order to, uh, to, to make sure that nobody's living in food insecurity anymore. Um, so that parents who are single parents have access to childcare, non-single parents for that matter, have access to $10 a day daycare. These are the reasons I'm going to Ottawa. And I'm just thinking about all those people and I don't want to let any of them down. I don't want to let a single one of them down. That's, I can, I can feel your heart in that. I can feel your passion and that's commendable. Thank you. Absolutely. And through and through your focus is on your immediate community. I'm curious as to what you think, because you're not running for municipal or provincial, you're running for federal. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the rest of Canada? You're supposed to represent not only your, your local constituents, but also the nation. Well, I think that uh, Glengarry Prescott Russell is an interesting writing because it looks like Canada. It really does. It's, I mean, you've got the more rural parts uh, of Glengarry Prescott Russell that look like farm country anywhere in Canada. You've got the Frank, you've got a strong, vibrant Francophone community. 60% of the writing is Francophone. And you've got the French language. That's such a huge part of Canada. But you've also got the English community, which is, represents 40% of the, of, of the writing. So you've got English Canada here too. You've got parts of the writing that are very urban, actually, like Parts of Rockland, uh, you know, well, Navin's not is pretty rural still, but it's starting to urbanize a bit. Um, and uh, the but like around uh, Hawkesbury is fairly rural, uh, fairly is starting to become fairly urban. Um, so what you you've got is kind of a perfect little snapshot of Canada in this writing, and uh, as a result, you kind of got every constituency in Canada in this writing. You've got new immigrants. You've got um, you, you, you've got every constituency in this country in this riding. So if I advocate for this riding and I advocate for the needs of this riding, um, the things that I'm fighting for are going to be relevant to people all through this country. Okay. What about like hyper-urban, you know, like downtown Toronto kind of vibe? Or... We've got beautiful people like Brian Chang and Paul <laughs> Taylor and... Uh, these on Zuby uh, running in these ridings, and they can uh, and they and they can represent their 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 urban constituents really really well. My job is not to represent my the super urban constituents. My job is to represent the constituents of Glengarry Prescott Russell, and I can do that very well. Fair enough. Fair so enough. you know, I, I'm I'm just glad that we have people like Paul Taylor and uh, Brian Chang and uh, Bizon Zuby and uh, so many other amazing people um, in our urban ridings as well. Um, uh, Ottawa Center, we've got Angela McEwen. Um, we have uh, some amazing, amazing people. Amazing people. Breen Willette, I think, is running again in Vancouver. I mean, some, some are, the NDP has a wealth of great candidates. Amazing candidates. And what's been your experience like, continuing with that in regards to the NDP? I love the NDP. The NDP has been my political home for a very long time. And uh, 
I do believe that the NDP is the best path forward if we want social, economic, and environmental justice. And uh, it is a party with deep roots in activism and deep roots in rural activism, actually. Like if you look back to the CCF days um, and Tommy Douglas in the beginning of the party, it was a rural party. And uh, we, and then it, that part, it was a, it was a collection of farmers who realized that they had a lot in common with trade unionists and they got together and built a party and it still really has those roots. And it's, it's, it's a party that's from the ground up. Um, When I don't like something that my party stands for, I go to convention and I can change it. I can write a resolution and it's read on the floor and it's listened to and we vote on it. And then that informs the platform next time. $20 an hour federal minimum wage showed up as a, was a grassroots members proposal that was brought to the last convention. And now it's part of our platform. That's how the NDP works. And it's beautiful in that way. Uh, A lot of, I think the other parties are a lot more top down, but we're a party that is, fueled by the people and that's why we're uh, and, and that's why we're able to advocate for people i mean i'm in a party that um doesn't have large donors from huge corporations donating to us we have regular everyday people i mean i've raised every penny i've raised has been from a member of the working class and uh my biggest donation i think was 500 dollars, and that was hugely generous and it was somebody who did that at great personal sacrifice and I know the person and I know what they do for a living and it's not, and they're not doing anything that I don't feel good about, you know? And, and that's, uh, that's been my experience. And uh, my, my, my donations are coming from people in this riding, people around me who are in the, who are community members, everyday community members, 50, a hundred bucks at a time are contributing. And that's how we're able. And, and through that power, we have a campaign office in downtown Rockland we have signs all over the place. We've got a huge presence on social media. We've managed to do so much on just the power of people. Whereas I look at the other parties and they're powered by uh, large donations coming from people who are very tied to large corporations, people who are in who are real estate developers who are profiting off of the housing crisis. They're 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 getting their donations from some pretty pretty scary places and most and a lot of them are not coming from the riding a lot of them are coming from toronto they're coming from bay street they're coming they're not uh and these are local uh, these are local candidates i'm talking about so i'm i love the ndp because it's a it's a party that attracts everyday people and is fueled by everyday people (laughs) i I'm curious as to what what's your plan if this doesn't work out? You keep advocating for people. I mean, in 2019, I didn't win the election. I came in third place, and it wasn't and it wasn't close. Um, I came in third place, um, but after that election, I didn't stop. I I kept my social media alive. I kept advocating for the things that I advocate for. I kept talking about the issues that I I, I talk about, and I kept pushing uh, the the winner of that election to live up to his more progressive promises. He didn't, but I kept pushing him to, and I kept nudging him and I kept advocating and I kept organizing in the community. And if I don't win this election, I'll keep organizing in the community. But the fact of the matter is I'm not running this election to lose. I'm running in this election to win. And I fully, fully believe that we can surprise people on September 20th and 
uh, and paint this riding orange for the first time in its history. I think that th that we that this is a moment that we can do it, and I'm seeing the momentum. I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm 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 overwhelmed with the amount of people who want to volunteer for us. I'm overwhelmed with the with the amount of small dollar donations we're getting. It's just been it's been overwhelming. And uh, still use a little bit more, constantinemalikos.ca slash donate, I have to say it, or my campaign manager will get mad at me. Um, but we are doing so well this election, and I, I'm, I, I, I believe that we're riding a wave of momentum that is so different, and it just feels different. And at the doors, it feels different. I'm going to the doors, and people are like, wait, you're the NDP guy. I'm at work at Bose, and somebody will come up to me and be like, be like, you're the NDP guy, aren't you? And that's just, that's beautiful. And it's beautiful because it means, it, it's not beautiful because they recognize me. I don't care if they recognize me. But they have heard our message, and they've heard what we're advocating for, and they've heard about our issues, and they're, th and they're thinking about our issues. And these conversations are happening, and people are talking about the affordability crisis. People are talking about marginalization. People are talking about how people are being exploited in our communities. And uh, I think that that's powerful. There is, I, I don't do, absolutely, it is powerful. It, it's a very, I can feel the momentum. You know, I can, I can sense that from you. And the, how that feeds back into your motivation. You know, it's not going to your head. It's not something that you think is directly connected to just you, but it's the things it that you're trying to do. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. People are just tired of not hearing their, their, their concerns addressed. They're, they're tired of not hearing their issues put forward. They're tired of not being heard. They're, not, they're tired of being made to feel like they're whining if they ask for more. They deserve more. People deserve more. Um, we've, been saying, uh, we've been saying throughout this campaign, you deserve better. You deserve more. And that's what we—that's the message we've been trying to get through to people: is that you deserve more. And people—people people are responding favorably to that because, yes, they do deserve more, and they know they deserve more. Yeah, I don't. I, well, I don't think anybody's going to uh, think that they deserve less. That's for sure. So it's a pretty safe slogan to go with. But the points that you're making also deeply resonate with the people who who need assistance and need help, and sooner than later. And. I'm curious as to what your approach has been in regards to a lot of the tensions and stresses and uh, uh, the, the kind of, to use a buzzword, the toxic tribalism that's been taking place as a result of the pandemic and of the election and just things that have been going on in our world so far. I think that it is very easy for rhetoric to get toxic, for people to get very, very hyper-partisan for people to get uh to to get tribal uh is it, it it happens and it's not a good thing um i think that the best way through that is to have conversations with people and to try to bridge those bridge those gaps and actually say hey what is it that's bothering you and listen and listen sincerely and listen with the intention of learning from it and trying to find common ground because the fact of the matter is you can find common ground with absolutely anybody there is something that you can find common ground with with absolutely anybody. Now, I am not sitting here and telling a, uh, a black person in Canada that they have to sit down with a member of the KKK and find common ground. I'm not going to do that. You have to feel safe and you have to be be safe. But as far as long as you can feel safe doing so, sit down and try to have a conversation with someone and try to find a common ground with them because chances are you will.
I, I don't disagree at all. Like this is part of why I'm having these conversations is to try to understand those common grounds and those perspectives and what people are trying to do to bridge those divides that I see taking place quite often. Yeah. You know, it's, I spend just a little bit of time on Twitter or social media or looking at other broadcasts and there's a lot of outrage and a lot of divisiveness and I really want to create the opportunity for people to to say what they have to say and to not feel judged for every word that comes out of their mouth and to be approached by somebody who's genuinely curious to understand. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that I'm succeeding at doing that. I think that that's wonderful. I think it's a wonderful goal. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to check, like, are you good? Are you good to keep talking? Or are I'm you... good to keep talking as long as you want to keep talking. I'm not a, I, I, I blocked off, a, I blocked off the evening. For okay. This, so yeah. When we're done, I go home. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I do have more questions for sure. Okay. So you, you're, you're talking to a lot of the local representatives. You're talking to a lot of the people within the community and you're deepening a relationship. Like you're, you're committed, you know, it's, this isn't a, you're seeing an opportunity and you're jumping at it kind of thing. Like you, you've been around a couple of times and has, what do you feel has changed in your approach from the beginning to now? You know, at the beginning, I was very much trying to be a politician. I was like, if I'm going to do this, I have to be like what I think a politician is supposed to be. And I, 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 because I was uncomfortable and I didn't know how to be a politician. You know, I'd never been a politician before. I just was a person who cared and wanted to do something because I cared, but I didn't know how. So I was like, do I try to be like uh, my political idols? Do I try to like model them? Like, you know what I mean? And I would be like, what do I wear? What do I wear to an event? You know, and I put on my tie and it didn't feel right. It didn't feel it wasn't me. And I was, you know, and I was stiff. And I would go to the door and I'd be like this and I'd have a basically a script and I'd be like, I'm here, I'm, I'm running for the NDP and blah, 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 blah. I, I want to, I'm your federal NDP candidate and this is what I want to do and blah, 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 blah. And with time, I realized that that was just alienating me from people and it was not, it was preventing me from having real conversations with people. So I said, all right you're not a candidate. You're just a guy trying to talk to people, trying to understand what's bothering them and trying to advocate for them. And uh, just go and have conversations with people, dress like you dress and, and just talk to people. And uh, when I decided to do that and was just, you know, got rid of all the like trying to be any sort of politician, I found my political voice and I found my, my political way. And I, I figured out who I was as a, as a politician by by becoming more of who I am as a human being. And I think that that's really, really valuable. Um, and, you know, now when I go to a dorm, I say, hi, my name's Constantine. I'm the uh, NDP candidate for the next federal election. Um, have you been thinking about the election much at all? Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. And then I say, what's on your mind? What have you been thinking about? What, what issues are important to you? And then they'll sometimes talk about politics, but sometimes they'll just talk about what's on their mind in general. Sometimes what they'll talk about has nothing to do with politics. And then I'll just have a conversation with them. And if I see something relevant that I could do and that my platform could help them with, I'll, I'll tell them, you know. But if I don't, I just have a conversation with them. And then I say, it was very nice to meet you today. I hope you consider me. And then I leave. And that's it. And that's how I, that's how I interact with people at the door now. 
I don't have, you know, uh, there's this idea of marks in politics where you're just trying to figure out, is this person my voter or not? And then move on to the next door. And that's, that's, that's the mentality a lot of politicians have, um, is that a canvas is about trying to just gauge your support, find your supporters, log them as a supporter and move on. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I believe that, um, a canvas is about trying to get to know your community and trying to get to know the people that you're supposed to be representing and to understand them better so that you can represent them in Ottawa should you win. And uh, that's what canvassing is all about. So you have to have these deep conversations with people and actually get to know them and their concerns and their issues so that you could then later represent them if they choose you to, to give you that honor. Yeah, I, that's absolutely a contrast to, to that kind of burn and turn approach of yeah. just figure it out a quick, as quickly as possible and move on to the next, move on to the next. And I'm curious as to what the history is of you deciding to to take this approach and also the value that you've ascribed to just having conversation and just asking simple questions. Like that's, it's. Because it works for me. It works for me. And I, I just, I tried different things until I figured out what worked for me. And that's what works for me. And I'll stay at a door with somebody for 30 minutes. I stayed at a door with somebody for an hour in, you know, it's, uh, it's, if somebody wants to keep talking, I'll keep talking. I'm not going to make them feel like they're, I'm in a hurry to get somewhere else. I'm exactly where I want to be. I'm talking to them. That's exactly where I want to be right then. And sure. Does that mean that I might not get to talk to as many people in an evening? Absolutely. But, uh, the people I spoke with, I might've made an impression on and they might've taken something away from it and they might've left feeling like I want to advocate for them. And I hope they do. Um, and maybe we'll talk to their friends about it. Maybe they won't, but, and maybe I'm stupid and maybe, uh, maybe this is the stupidest thing in the world and that I'm, uh, you know, like, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I haven't won an election yet. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm just saying, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is, I'm not going to be anyone other than me. And that's, uh, you know, I, I like to have these deep conversations with people. Yeah, I, I respect that. I respect that deeply. Yeah, just wanting to connect with someone's inner humanity and really yeah. understand where they're coming from and what's on their mind, even if it's just something simple. Yeah. You know, because ultimately that's your responsibility is you're showing up at someone's door and saying, I want to represent you, whatever it is that you're thinking about and concerned about. Absolutely. That's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. And <laughs> I love the humility too, you know, the ability to kind of poke fun at yourself at the same time. Well, I mean, I can't take myself too seriously. I'm just... uh like, you know, I'm, why would I take myself too seriously? Mm -hmm. I, I like when I get home, like I, I, I still have to, uh, I, I still have to just put the chickens away and do my things. Like I'm not a, like, I'm just, I'm just a person. I'm not, a, I'm not trying to be something I'm not. Yeah. So w when you go and, and have these political conversations, and try to stay as informed as possible. What resources do you turn to? Who do you have conversations with? Like, how do you keep informed? I have a. I, I try to keep my range of sources for news as varied as I possibly can, and I try to get news not only from sources that agree with me, but also sources that are not necessarily my perspective. Um, so I listen to the Power and Politics podcast on CBC. And sometimes it drives me crazy because it's so horse race focused and it's so not the kind of politics that I believe in. It's just like, it's about uh, who, who did this, who the games and the levers. And I just find that infuriating, but it's important to hear what, what 
what people are saying, you know? And so I, I listen to that. I, I listen to a, a podcast called New Left Radio, which I really love, which is just two, uh, two guys from London, Ontario, who do really great political analysis of Canadian news and uh, Canadian politics. And they're just, they're, they're fantastic. It's, it's a, it's a really, really good perspective. And I highly recommend their podcast. I listen to Sandy and Nora talk politics. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Um, but it's another podcast, and uh, Sandy Hudson uh, founded Black Lives Matter Toronto. Uh, no, yeah, and and Nora Loretto is a uh, contributing uh, journalist to McLean's Magazine, among other things, and was very, very uh, involved in uh, in in exposing the uh, mistreatment of seniors in long term care at the beginning of the pandemic and the uh, death rates in, in long term care. She was very uh, instrumental in exposing all of that. So the two of them have a political podcast called Saren, uh, Sandy and Nora Talk Politics, and it's weekly, and it's incredible. And they, they have some of the most in-depth analysis you will hear. Um, I read a lot, too. I, I read the TIE. I read uh, The Guardian. I read the CBC. Um, I read local outlets as much as I can. Um, most of my local news comes from uh, comes from the review out of Bankley Kill, but I also read Le Reflet. Uh, the Tribune Express, all of those, um, Le Regional out of Hawkesbury. Um, I really, really try to diversify the uh, the news sources I get as much as possible. I watch a lot of TVC twenty two. Any anytime there uh, there's any meetings or conferences or, or, or interviews on TVC twenty two about local issues, municipal issues, I try to listen to them because I want to know. I want I want to have my finger on the pulse. So I want to know what people are people are saying what people are thinking at any given time and is there anything that people have been saying that kind of really caught you off guard like you just did not anticipate well i i try not to have preconceptions about people i try to be open-minded and 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 see where people are um what i find interesting is that sometimes when i start to have preconceptions or i assume somebody's going to feel a certain way they they surprise me in a good way you know um they're uh you know, a lot of a lot of candidates have been talking about Jagmeet Singh and how, um, you know, some candidates I've spoken with have spoken to me about how they've gotten racism at the door uh, directed at Jagmeet Singh, and uh, I'll go to a door and so I've gotten racism at the door directed to Jagmeet Singh. I'm not going to pretend I haven't, um, but I've also gotten to doors and had someone say, "Oh, he's the guy with the beard, isn't he?" And I'm thinking, "Oh, should cue something racist now," and uh, it like this was the other day. Uh, a, a, a lady probably in her late 80s um, an, an older francophone lady and uh, she she then said once I confirmed he was the one with the beard she was she went on about how good looking he was and it was just it was just so you know I was I was ready for one thing and I got a different thing altogether and that was funny and it was just a good little from the door story yeah, yeah. the what has been your take on just the demographics of this community from age ranges and incomes and education? Well, this community uh, skews older. It does. Um, we have an aging population. Um, interestingly, in this election versus 2019, there are a lot of younger people moving in um, and a lot of people are coming in from the cities. Um, demographics are starting to change here a little bit. Um, and I, and I think it's because of the pandemic, people working from home, people are de-urbanizing their lives. They're doing what I did years ago. You know, there's a lot of that happening right now. Um, but it does still skew older. 
Um, and it's you, and it's more francophone than anglophone, and that's still the case. And I, I hope that remains the case because that's one of the things that makes this area so beautiful and wonderful is the uh, is is the richness that the French language brings to it. So I hope we don't lose that. And are there any events or traditions in this region that you're a big fan of? Uh, I love the Highland Games in Maxville. If you've ever gone to that, that's a that's a lot of fun. Um, Bo's Oktoberfest is so much fun. Um, let's see. Uh, they do a really good Canada Day festivity at, in Alexandria every year. It's a it's it's a, it's a fun day. Um, there's the all all the fairs around here. You know the uh, the agricultural fairs, the Navin Fair. Um, that's great. Um, there's just uh, there's the Cumberland Market every year. That's a really fun, uh, an amazing local market. One of the best markets I've ever been to. So yeah, I think that our, our this community is full of great great events and great people and great great stuff. And how do you manage to recharge after a full day of what you do? Like when, in your description, there's not really any moment for rest. Or... <laughs> I run on adrenaline and caffeine. <laughs> okay. I drink way too much coffee. I, I I have a little bit of an addiction to joyful coffee in Rockland. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, they're two blocks away from my office, for better <laughs> or worse. Um, but I tend to buy the bags of beans and and uh, make my own coffee with it because it's just me. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I I have a I have an unhealthy addiction to caffeine and uh, adrenaline. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed adrenaline based upon like your calm demeanor. <laughs> well, I mean, you keep going, right? You keep going, and then when when this election is over, twenty first, I'm sleeping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either way, I'm just gonna sleep the whole day. I, I booked it off work, and my the only thing on my agenda is sleep. Smart, very, very, very smart. <laughs> yeah, I hope a pleasant sleep where I'm just thinking about how I'm going to be uh, preparing to go and fight for this community in Ottawa. But uh, yeah, sleep. That'd be a wonderful dream. <laughs> it's just like yeah. you wouldn't want to wake up because everything you would imagine would be perfect. <laughs> you wouldn't have any opposition. There wouldn't be anybody slandering you. Well, I'm 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 not naive enough to expect that. I mean, I'm I'm used to it. I've been targeted so much on social media lately. I've been uh, uh this has not been a this has not been a friendly campaign for the most part. I've uh, because I'm resonating and my message is resonating, and I think the other parties are feeling threatened by what we're doing and what we're pushing and how we're the momentum we've got, and I think that they're seeing it, and uh, I think that it's starting to scare them. And uh, so this campaign, like, de definitely uh, is preparing me for the opposition in the House of Commons. That's for sure. Is there anything about that? way of working that lifestyle that resonates with you because it's not it's not farm work no but i've always been uh i've always been someone who likes to talk about ideas and i've always been someone who likes to push for change and progress i was a big i was a i was a competitive debater in high school yeah, I was I was the nerdy kid. I was the competitive debater. Um, I went to debate conferences and I all over the country, all over the place. So it was like you know, it was a it was mostly all over Ontario. We didn't really travel outside of Ontario, but just uh, but it was fun, you know. And uh, that was I, I was a model UN kid. I was like, <laughs> you you don't get much dorkier than I was. Um, but uh, 
but debating ideas and, and, and conferences around ideas are so like, they really do uh, make me excited fighting for things in conventions, going to NDP conventions and uh, fighting for, for, for motions and trying to get things passed. Like it, 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 it is, it's exciting because what you know you're doing is you're actually making change. You're, 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 you're shaping policy and you're in order to make things better for people. Like that's, that's so exciting. And it's the same, like the things that, that, that draw me to farming are that I'm making the world a little bit of a better place. When on my little plot of land, I'm making the world better. I'm making our environment better. I want to use my life to make things better. That's, that's very respectable and commendable. Absolutely. I'm curious as to your take on, on CERB, you know, when you're talking about making changes that, that whole rollout really kind of surprised me. I'm, I'm grateful that it happened. It's, it's a very fascinating choice to make. And there are trade-offs across the board. One of the things I found kind of strange about it is, in essence, you know, in theory, it's supposed to be helping the most vulnerable. But yet there's a clause within it that you have to make over $5,000 a year to be able to qualify for it. So there's people who signed up for it originally, got the money, put it to purpose, and now they're finding out that they have to pay it back. And that's wrong. And that was a, that's something that it's so, so sick. Um, so it was supposed to be $1,000 a month the liberals wanted to give. We, we pushed for 2000 and we got 2000 for people. And that, that we're proud of. Um, but we said at the time that there's going to be clawbacks, there's going to be problems, and we need to make sure that we address those now. And we need to make sure that nobody who needs it finds themselves in a situation later that it's a bad situation. Now we're seeing seniors seeing clawbacks to their CPP because they took CERB. That's not okay. Um, just remember that Q's, which was the other program unveiled at the same time, the wage subsidy, which gave 75% of wages to employers so they could keep employees on staff. Um, was used by some of the some companies that actually made money during the pandemic. They used cues. It wasn't for them. It was supposed to be for small businesses, for people like my parents who have small businesses who are just trying to struggling to keep make ends meet and had to close because of the pandemic. That's what cues was for. Um, there's a there's a company that's a small that that does education around animals uh, in Rockland. Uh, this guy was doing a video about it. Cues was supposed to protect businesses like his businesses that had to shut down because of the pandemic. That's what it was for. Um, but some companies took cues and made money during the pandemic and they don't have to pay that money back. But seniors who took C who took uh, CERB are being, are seeing clawbacks to their CPP over CERB. That's not okay. Um, we, we saw that the disabled community was completely left out of CERB. That's not okay either. There's so many people who were left out of CERB that it just didn't. So it was. I'm glad that it existed. I'm glad that it was there. And I'm glad that we fought to make it $2,000 a year. But it's very cold. What? Oh, sorry, a month. Thank you. Um, $2,000 a year would not get you very far. <laughs> no. um, uh, as I said, I'm uh, running on adrenaline and coffee. Um, but uh, it's it's the... It's that it's so inhuman uh, that we're going after the people who are struggling the most. You made less than five thousand dollars, so so therefore we're going to ask you for money. Like the the logic of that is insane. When we should be going after the 
The richest 44 Canadians brought in $78 billion over the course of the pandemic. Think about that. 44 people, $78 billion. They're just, they're, they're just walking away. They've got that money in their pocket. They're, instead of going after them, we're going after uh, Sylvie Lamarche in Embrun, who, uh, I'm, if, if that's a real person, I'm sorry, I just made up that name. <laughs> um, there's probably a Sylvie Lamarche in Embrun. And to Sylvie Lamarche in Embrun, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about a hypothetical Sylvie Lamarche who is not you. For a second there, she felt very heard and understood yeah, by you. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. But this hypothetical Sylvie Lamarche who does not exist, but, pro but it probably does exist, um, is... 80, 85 years old and she took CERB because she thought she could and now she owes all this money and it's being clawed back from her CPP and she can't pay her rent. That's not okay. That's not okay. Now, I find it, this is another challenging point on, there's people who need additional support and need financial resources and that's a thing. And then there are people who are making lots of money and that's a thing. And there's that conversation of do we take money from people who have money and give to people who don't have money or do we just give money to the people who don't have money? Well, the money that we give to the people who don't have money has to come from somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and, and people love to say, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? That's their favorite question to ask the NDP. Um, but we don't ask people the question, how are you going to pay for that when they advocate for tax cuts for, uh, for large corporations? Or we don't ask people, how are you going to pay for that when uh, we give uh, a bunch of money to Loblaws to buy refrigerators? Or we they don't ask people how we're going to pay for that when we, give, when we bail out Bombardier. We don't ask people. We, we, don't ask, we don't ask any questions. We only ask, how are you going to pay for that when it comes to helping re regular people who are struggling to make ends meet? So yes, absolutely, we are going to tax the richest among us, and that's how we're going to pay for that. And uh, it's going to be a 1% wealth tax on wealth over $10 million. And uh, yes, that's absolutely something that needs to happen. And it, it needs to happen now because uh, wealth inequality is out of control in this country. Now, the, the, the bailing out of large corporations... There's the argument being made like, okay, if this company goes under, there's going to be huge economic downfall. There's a lot of people going to lose jobs and lose, going to lose our homes and communities and everything like that. And that's like a macro example of what would be the micro of, of an individual. You know, if regardless, if you take money from people, if you give money to those who need it, it's preventative. You know, if they do fall, if they do collapse, then that costs our society far more if they show up in the ER, if they show up in prison, if they, if they kill themselves. Like this is a greater pain, emotional, and also financial and societal than if the person is given a decent standard of living. And I could, I could see an argument for, okay, there's people making a lot of money in these situations and it doesn't really feel like it's a fair way in which they're making money. No, that's definitely a conversation. I guess my concern is whenever there is that conversation of take from these people and give to these people, it can sometimes be a slippery slope. Well, I think that something we need to look at is, so the Bombardier example, um, you, you mentioned that if we don't bail out this company, that uh, it's going to have a huge repercussion in terms of jobs. And you're not wrong. You're not wrong about that. However, 
we bailed them out multiple times and they keep making the same mistakes and they keep doing the same things and we don't have we don't hold them to anything after we bail them out and what it what really angers me is that the CEOs still take bonuses the year th- the year that they're bailed out so yes maybe maybe we can make the argument that it makes sense to bail them out but when we bail them out we can we have to have rules in place you're not allowed to take bonuses this year you have to uh you 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 have to uh run your company on the most bare, in the mar- most bare bones way possible and get through this hump we're giving you this much money but it's not a blank check you know that's how it needs to be handled but what happens is we do just give write them blank checks they do whatever they want and then they just come back to us for more and they come back to us for more and they come back to us for more and it's the uh uh uh, Lewis, um, not Stephen Lewis, but his father, um, who uh, David Lewis, who was the uh, federal leader of the NDP at one point, uh, coined the term the corporate welfare bum. And uh, that's what he was talking about, is these companies that just keep coming to our government and asking them for more and more and more. And they're taking blood from a stone, you know, and that's, uh, and we always write them the check, but we need to be able to write the check for the people who need it in our communities. And we need to bail them out. And that's so important. So I understand what you're saying about like, we can't just take, take, take from the richest. But the fact is that we as working class people are paying our taxes by percentage more so than the richest among us because they have access to the best, uh, the best, best, best uh, lawyers and the best accountants who are helping them hide their money and they're not paying their taxes. And that's a problem too. So we definitely need to go after that wealth. So there's that. I definitely want to dive into that, but I also I'm trying to get back to a point that came up when, so writing a check for the the businesses instead of writing a check to the people, right? So if we think about something like universal basic income, where if you lose your job, you have a social safety net and you don't have the stigma of taking a bit of time to recalibrate, re-educate yourself and get yourself into a new industry or, or into another job. And Bombardier is a really large organization. And if it didn't get that check, it would have to downsize, specialize, and focus on where it could be productive. And then all those who are let go, there's the opportunity for them to come together and take on new projects or start new sister companies or anything that spins off from that. You know, there there are ways in which a large organization can essentially downgrade, downsize, but that other systems can be put into place so that way that experience isn't a full-on tragedy and that there is some benefit that could come from that experience instead of just continuing the same experience over and over again. I hear what you're saying. I definitely hear what you're saying. And for for me, it comes down to uh, holding the... CEOs and the corporations to account when we give them money and making sure that they are being good stewards of that money and uh, taking care to not need the bailout again. But it's uh, I'm much more interested in seeing uh, regular people uplifted. And so you bring up UBI, and I, I'm glad you brought you up, up UBI because it comes up a lot. And I have very mixed feelings about UBI. Um, or it's a nuanced, nuanced feelings about UBI. I do believe in guaranteed basic minimum income. I do believe in that. And that, the way Leah Gazan put it forward in the last parliament was beautiful. Um, she said that uh, an assessment would be done of every community to find out what the cost of living is. And it would be a very honest assessment done by a third party that is not the government. Um, and uh, not ty- a nonpartisan third party um, would do the assessment. 
and uh, whatever the cost of living is in your community. If you get that through or more through your job, you get nothing. If you get less than that through your job, uh, you're topped up to that amount. And it allows people to make decisions to go back to school, to become stay-at-home parents, whatever they want to do, they can do that. Or they can focus on their career because it's enough money to cover their basic needs. But it's not enough money that they're going to want to stay on that forever necessarily, but they can if they want to. Um, now, what's key, though, about Legazan's proposal is that it's in conjunction with all other safety net programs. And the reason that that is so important is because there are programs in place, for example, to help disabled people pay for a wheelchair, or there are uh, programs in place to help people pay for medication. Until we have universal uh, pharmacare, uh, those programs exist. So if we, if we eliminate all those programs, and then, but then provide basic income, well, the person who needs the wheelchair or the medications or whatever is not in the same boat as the person who doesn't. So it's very important that these programs exist in conjunction with the existing safety net, and it's not a backdoor way to get rid of the safety net. Um, so, you know, you have to be very careful when you're looking at that because there are some people who have proposed UBI as a replacement for everything else, and that can't happen. Yeah, I understand the, the subtleties. Yeah, absolutely. You know, You have to take people's not only general living conditions and in consideration, but also if they have disadvantages compared to the average able-bodied, able-minded person. Yeah. And in regards to uh, the CEOs and like putting ties to, to funding that goes out to people, I hear your point on the, like the ultra-rich can afford the best of the best when it comes to financial advice. And also sometimes they actually don't even have an income. You know, you can structure yourself in a way that you operate completely off of debt because of the assets that you have. And so therefore you don't have an income. You just take a line of credit out on the, the assets that are assigned to you. And then when you die, those get sold or repossessed and the income from that like fully clears your line of credit. So you never really have to worry about it as long as you still have possession of those, those things. Yeah. And that's, these are games people play. And we saw the Panama Papers came out where we, we, it was revealed just how much money Canada was losing, billions and billions of dollars being lost in just uncollected taxes. And a lot of these loopholes people are using are, are legal currently, and they just need to be closed. We just need to actually uh, look at things and change laws so that money made in Canada has to be taxed in Canada. And it's just, it's, it's a question of political will. And it's not going to happen as long as these people are donating to the large parties, though. Mm -hmm. And it's, I feel like it's kind of a, a new cultural challenge to take on. You know, before it, it used to be that nations were basically the biggest economic players around. And now we have international corporations that are making more money than, you know, us multitudes combined. And trying to stay on top of their game is a unique challenge and also a new conversation yeah. for the everyday person. We've got Bezos taking joyrides to space now, right? That's, uh, that's happening on the, but that's happening on the backs of Amazon warehouse workers who are struggling. Um, that is happening on the backs of Canadian taxpayers, actually. Um, did you know that Amazon, when they sell a, a product in Canada, they're not being taxed on it in Canada? So when they're using something that is called the uh, low-value shipment loophole, 
So if they ship something from the U.S. directly to your door, um, it clears the border as a low-value shipment because it's under a certain amount, uh, the value of that actual box. It's not taxed. It goes through as a low-value shipment. It arrives at your door. You've paid Amazon. They've gotten away with having no sales taxes assessed on that at all. They're able to undercut uh, and sell it to you cheaper than the place down the street from you because the place down the street from you is buying this product wholesale. And when it crosses the border wholesale, they have to pay taxes on that import. So they're, so they're, uh, they're being taxed on it. The, the, the store down the street from you, is being uh, the small business is being taxed on it. So they can't charge as little as Amazon can. You buy from Amazon. Amazon makes their money off the Canadian taxpayer um, by stealing from the Canadian taxpayer, essentially, by not paying those taxes. And then G Jeff Bezos goes to space on your money and my money. And that's, that's happening right now. And that should insult every Canadian taxpayer. And how, how do you come across this? It's docu like we've got the documents. It's, uh, we know what's happening. We know what's happening. I, I, I work for a large shipping company. I see how things cross the border every day. A big part of my job is actually looking at how goods cross the border and how they're brokered and who's brokering them and how and what the taxes on them are. And I see this every day. This is... This is a big part of what I do for a living is, is, is seeing this data and it's mind boggling and it makes me mad. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's not hard to think about the scale of something like that. Yeah. The amount of shipments that are taking place on a daily basis and the, I guess the, the branding of Amazon as, as being the least expensive option. And now we're starting to understand a little bit more why. Yeah. You know, because the workers' conditions, because of the loopholes like this, it's, you know, you don't get a free lunch is the saying. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I'm not going to say that I don't use Amazon. And it's interesting because I saw Fra Francis Druin had an interview. Um, uh, Druin had an interview um, recently that I listened to where he was, he was bragging about the fact that he never ordered anything from Amazon. And I'm like, well, that's all well and good. But this is not about personal responsibility and personal choice of individuals. We're not going to change these systemic problems through our personal buying decisions. You not buying from Amazon is not going to stop the problem at hand. The problem at hand is going to be stopped through policy. These are pro policy issues. These are not individual choice issues. Yeah, that, that goes for the environment too. It's all well and good to say, um, I use reusable uh, I use reusable tea cloths and I don't buy paper towel anymore. And I'm, I try to make all these green choices and I use cloth diapers or whatever the case may be. And all these choices, people are making the zero waste and everything. And I think they're commendable. And I actually do a lot of them, those things myself. I actually live in that way uh, to a large extent myself. And I do think that there is room for personal decisions. But the fact of the matter is that these are systemic problems. These are policy problems. These are not... These are not things that are going to be solved with a few people making good decisions. These are things that are going to be solved on a policy level. And so what other large policies are kind of grabbing your attention? There's a lot of things that I think we desperately need right now. Um, I want to see real action on the environment. I want to see us divest from fossil fuels completely. Um, and I think that that uh, has to be done in a very kind way because my mother was raised in Alberta. I have a ton of family in Alberta. I have family who works in the oil sands in Alberta. 
and I am for complete divestment from fossil fuels. I think that we need to completely get away from fossil fuels. But I also see the faces of my cousins who work in the oil fields, and I know that that is their livelihood. And I know that they would be hurt by the end of the oil fields um, in a way. But I also know that it's not sustainable and we need to move away from it. But I care deeply about my cousins, and I think about them every time I think about these policies. And so a just transition for those workers means training. It means making sure there's jobs for them in a green energy economy. It means making sure that none of them are left behind and that they are all taken care of and that none of them none of them suffer even a little bit as we make the transition. And that's doable. We can do it. Um, but it ta- it's going to take some political will. Um, the technologies have been in development for a long time towards green cars, towards electric cars. Um, but for the longest time, there was no incentives for the large car companies to invest in those technologies. And so we've stayed with fossil fuel cars. And I still drive a Mazda CX-5. It's a fossil fuel car because I can't afford a Tesla, not on my salary. Um, but it shouldn't be that only the rich can afford to make the green car choice. It should be accessible to everybody. And it would be accessible to everybody if we had looked at phasing out fossil fuels and forcing car companies to switch their manufacturing years ago. Not now, but years ago. And now we're talking about 2035. Well, we should have already been having this conversation years ago. We should already be there. And 2035 is way too slow. We need to do these things so much more quickly. And we need to be building as much of this technology in Canada as we can. And I just think about this region being sandwiched between Ottawa and Montreal. What an amazing area to to develop some of this industry, you know, uh, building electric cars and building electric infrastructure and green technologies. So if, but if you want something to be accessible for a lot of people, I'm trying to think of what manufacturing takes place in Canada that makes it affordable and accessible to average people because most of the reasons that things are accessible and affordable is because they're produced in places that have lower quality of living, lower income, lower value of their currency. There's truth to that. And I think that that's, that's another example of how, uh, how, how large corporations in Canada are making their money, uh, the, the richest among us, the 44 richest people with the 78 billion since the beginning of the pandemic, have made their money through the exploitation of people, right? And they're exploiting people in these countries. They're paying them substandard wages um, for, the, for goods, and that's a big part of how they're making their wealth. But I do think that we can make things, have good union jobs with good benefits in Canada and have things that are affordable for Canadian consumers. It's going to involve subsidies. It's going to involve, uh, it's, 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 it, but it's doable. It's doable. But we're, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to, have to uh, make sure that we can automate some of the production. Um, we, we need to, uh, we're going to save money on transport by building things here. So there's that. But uh, we're going to have to subsidize uh, people. Like the, the initial cost of these vehicles is going to be higher. Um, but as a country, we need to be prepared to subsidize, at least initially. And uh, with any technology, we can, we, we can drive down the cost of production through time. And uh, d- develop, you know, when you first build a new technology, it's very expensive. And then after time, companies figure out how to make it cheaper. 
and, uh, and but that innovation needs to happen and in order for that innovation to happen the Canadian government needs to invest in it. I'm trying to think of where we are currently with electronic vehicles you know and from what I see so far the biggest innovations are taking place in private corporations that are getting funding from all around the world and a large way in which they're able to do what they do is in large part because of automation. So if there was to be a factory created in Canada, I'm trying to think of how it could succeed and compete if it doesn't follow the same recipe, essentially. Well, I mean... The actual factory would probably look very similar to the factories in the U.S. but uh, and elsewhere that exist. I mean, Teslas are, are made in California, I believe. I'm not positive about that, but I think they're made in California. Um, and, and they probably wouldn't look all that different. Um, but uh, in, in, in the, the model that I see, they would be unionized. Uh, they would be prop. People would get really good benefits, really good pay. People would be treated right in those factories. But otherwise, they probably operate quite similarly to the way Tesla operates. But if we're subsidizing them and, uh, and investing in these companies as a government, um, then we can definitely drive down the costs and we can definitely um, ensure that, that they're accessibly priced. Um, but that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to invest and subsidize. And then the Canada and the government can be a stakeholder in that. We also can look at cooperative models. Cooperatives are great. Worker owned cooperatives, you know, where uh, the people making the goods are have are stakeholders in the company. I mean, what better examples of cooperatives can you find than right here in Glengarry Prescott Russell with St. Albert Cheese and Bose Brewery? And what you see is two of the most highly successful co uh, companies in the country. And the way that they operate is that the owners uh, who are creating the wealth for those companies are the ones profiting from those companies directly. And so they're invested in them and they want them to succeed and they want them to move forward and they want them to do well. And what you have in St. Albert Cheese and Bose Brewery are two of the most successful companies in Canada. And that's not an accident. It's not an accident. So, you know, I think... Crown corporations are great, but I also really love the idea of worker-owned cooperatives. I'm, I'm, I'm not answering, like, I don't, I don't have all the answers and I'm not going to come and say that this is how we should do it. And we should, these are conversations we need to be having. These are, th these are the directions we need to be moving. And these are some of the things that I think are, are good strategies. Yeah. The cooperative is a really great point, you know, and the people who are working within the business having an ownership within it as a great motivator, a great incentive. Like it, it blends the incentive. Absolutely. Like I, I'm actually genuinely surprised as to why there aren't more organizations like this. Like, but I mean, Glengarry Prescott Russell has two of the biggest ones. Yeah. And that's, and that's something I'm very proud of in this writing. I'm actually grateful that you shared that with me. I did not know that it was uh, cooperative in that sense. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's good to know. It's good to know. Yeah. And I also very much appreciate you being humble, you know, acknowledging that you don't have all the answers, but that you're, you're curious about this and you want to have these conversations and you want to be challenged and explore all the options that are possible to find solutions. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm curious as to 
what what topics do you feel are near and dear to you personally that you don't really see reflected in the community yet? Well, I, I, I very much believe in social justice in all areas and racial diversity is very important to me. Racial justice is very important to me and I'm seeing the writing get more diverse, but the right there, there are all, but in the areas closer to Ottawa, you're seeing more diversity now. But in a lot of the riding, you're not seeing a lot of racial diversity. Still, um, it's changing. There's more racial diversity every day, but it's not very racially diverse here. And when I look at that, uh, some people would say, well, that's just the way this area is. It's always been that way. It, it, it's, it's, it's not nothing. It's just that's, that's our area. This, these, are the, these families have been here forever, and that's just the way it is. But me, I'm curious, and I say, well, if people are not, if there's not diversity here, is it because people aren't feeling safe here? Is it that people don't want to move here? When new immigrants arrive, are they not feeling like this is a welcoming place? If so, why? And I'm not saying that it's not a welcoming place. In fact, everybody I've met in the riding seems very welcoming and very open. So, but I have to say, if there's somebody who's not coming here or isn't here or is underrepresented here compared to other places, like in rural communities, we have less racial diversity too. Why is that? Why do, why do racialized people feel less safe in rural communities? And these are questions we need to be asking ourselves in soul searching. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to say I have the answer, but I'm going to say that we have to be asking ourselves that. And as a white person specifically, I have to be asking myself, what role am I playing in that? Am I doing anything to make people feel like this isn't a safe place to be? And uh, this, this place that I love, is, this, is, is there a reason people don't feel safe here? And I have to ask myself that. Yeah, and it's, it's commendable. You know, to you're constantly looking for these opportunities of improvement and how to help people feel more welcome and and heard and understood, and the safety element for sure. You know, you want a sense of community that people can feel like they belong, and it ma- it makes a lot of sense. You know, especially your background where you come from and the experiences that you've had. It really brings home that importance to advocate for people who might not feel like they have a home in the community that they live in. And I'm, it's, it's very easy to, to get riled up and focus on all these big things that are happening around us and, and feel overwhelmed and feel swamped and don't really know what the next step is. And in, for yourself or for people that you've seen go through that, what are some of the small steps that you have taken or you've seen other people take to kind of ground themselves? And, you know, you might not be able to create peace in the Middle East, but you can maybe get your family to get along with each other a little bit more. You know what I mean? Like finding ways to still scratch that same itch that gets aggravated from these huge global issues. I try to bring people together as much as I can. I try to be a, a bridge builder between people. I, I do. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person who can't not get involved in other people's conflicts and try to help. Um, that's just, that's, that's my nature um, to my detriment sometimes. Um, but generally speaking, I spend a lot of my life just very anxious and very stressed about things that are big problems, the big problems in the world. I just, 
they I fixate on them and I I get stressed about them and I feel I feel like I need to do something about them and I just I'm a person who just spends a very large amount of my life thinking about things that are very very large and uh I I can they they can weigh on me like I I, I go through little depressions I I I can get very depressed about these issues um, but I, I find that if I'm advocating and if I feel like I'm doing something and I feel like I'm talking about them and I feel like I'm pushing these issues forward and uh, pushing the conversations forward and trying to advocate for the change, then I'm okay. Then, I'm, then I feel like my life has a purpose and a thrust and I'm okay. But the second that I feel like I'm not in a place to advocate for people or do the things that need to be done, I get really depressed and I just, I, I, like, it, it's, it's actually... It, it 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 weighs on me so much. Like it these these issues are, I I've internalized them and they've become so personal to me, that I, I can't let them go. And I'm, it's it it can, it can be tough sometimes. It can be hard. I like I'm listening and I, I can feel that weight that you're talking about and how deeply you've internalized this mission. You know it's. Part of me is a little concerned for you, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, well, I, I have, I have a lot of joy in my life too. Yes, I do. I have a lot of joy in my life. Like, honestly, if I can just go outside and uh, be with my chickens and just sit and watch them uh, crack open a beer, like, and I can just look, look at my property, look at the forest that I'm growing, look at the food that's growing. I just, I feel this joy and I feel this sense of beauty and the sense of, love and that's good too if i can just be with my spouse sitting on the sofa I, I i just i can feel peace and those are the moments where i feel peace but most of the time i just feel this this urge and this drive to the for the fight and this fight is just so deeply deeply seated in me well i'm very glad that you have that release that reconnection to nature and your friends and your family that when you feel weighed down you have an option that gets you out of your head and reconnected with people and reinvigorated to keep advocating, keep doing what you do. And I want to say thank you. Thank you. You spending this time talking with me and sharing everything that you have shared because <laughs> I feel more informed as a result of it. And I feel like I have a much better understanding as to who wants to represent members of my community. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to people. I try to be as open as I can. I try not to hold back. And uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. If you wish to hear the rest of this interview, or others like it, please visit cjroradio.com and click on the podcast link to listen. Or you can contact us to schedule an interview of your own. Thank you for listening.